my friends. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of Life Over Coffee. I got something quite special here. I'm going to be interviewing a former professional wrestler, Nikita Koloff, who later in his life, God regenerated him, and uh, he has dedicated uh, his life to uh, sharing the gospel of Christ. And so we connected with him, uh, me as a, a, a wrestling fan, uh, I am quite familiar with Nikita and his wrestling career. What I'm not familiar with is uh, his ministry career, if I could put it like that. Uh, and so I want to talk to him, and he's been very gracious to uh, come on the podcast. Uh, for those of you who are listening to the audio, thank you so much for joining. But if you do have time, jump over to YouTube, and you can actually watch this uh, Zoom recording that I'm doing with Nikita. Nikita, thank you so much for coming on the podcast uh, and the video. Well, great, Rick, great, great to be with you. I love the title, uh, convers what, Conversation Over Coffee? Uh, life, or, uh, life Over Coffee. Life Over Coffee. So I'm I'm not a coffee drinker. However, I, I, I do like the title. So that's, that's awesome. Yeah. And so here it is. This is my coffee and we're doing Life Over Coffee. Uh, nice. And so that's 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 who we are. All right. So, Nikita, if you don't mind, I you know, if we could divide this up in halves, I, I, I do want to uh, talk a little bit about your wrestling career and then uh, we can transition into uh, you know what happened in '94 uh, or whenever it was God saved you, and then we can talk about uh, yeah. ministry and so forth. And so I have lots of questions now. Uh, my my audience, this is this is a this is a hot take for them. They have no idea uh, that I am a wrestling fan. And I and I would say let me let me clarify. I'm a wrestling fan from the old school. Uh, right. I'm not as interested in, or haven't been as interested in, you know, what has happened, you, you know, over the past couple of decades. But uh, there was a time in wrestling from, you know, and, and you may have your own perspective. I'm sure you do. But from the mid '70s to maybe 1990 or so, and that was really your career from, you know, what '84 to '92. Was yeah. that it? Yeah, '92 and '93, and 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 I understand you know, our conversation today bring brings you back. Many times I'll meet individuals, whether it's at you know autograph signings, comic cons, or other legends events and other things that they're like, you know the 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 you're bringing out the twelve year old child in me, right? I mean, uh, you know, because they go they go back to their childhood. I'm I'm a I'm a memory of their childhood, and you know, before we started the interview, you brought up some. Some interesting names, you know, being uh, you, you were in the mecca of wrestling in those days. What they, yeah. what the fans have told me is called the golden era of wrestling, eighties yeah. and early nineties. And you know, but names like Johnny Weaver, George Becker, uh, I mean Wahoo McDaniel. Um, I, I was fortunate to, I actually had, believe it or not, Rick, I actually had some matches against the legendary master of the sleeper, Johnny Weaver. Oh yeah, but believe it or not, he was in the twilight of his career and. And for your audience who's just now learning that you actually uh, had been a wrestling fan in the past, ho hopefully this will be fun for them. And I, I'd venture to say that some might come out as well and go, oh, my gosh, I had no idea. I am, too, you know, or I was, you know, a fan of wrestling. So appreciate you having me on. Really. Oh, you're welcome. And for uh, all of you who are still in the closet, uh, you need to come out and. Uh... <laughs> That's right. And just own it. You know, I've thought a lot about this, uh, Nikita. Uh, I was raised quite dysfunctionally. Uh, 
my dad was an abusive alcoholic, and and my mother had her issues, and and we're just five five crazy boys who, uh, you know, just did some wild things. But uh, there there is a vicarious element to uh, wrestling of good versus evil, and as a boy looking for a way to escape his home life, I found the portal of the television as a way of escape. And so I could watch wrestling and I could watch good versus evil. And, you know, the good guy many times would win and I could vicariously live through that. And as odd as it may sound, it was it was kind of a salvation in a dysfunctional childhood. I am not trying to ration, uh, intellectualize or rationalize why I enjoyed wrestling, but as I've reflected back on it, uh, it made me feel good, uh, to be honest with you. And we talk about Johnny Weaver. Uh, yeah, I mean, he's from the Charlotte. Well, I don't know where he's from, but he lived in the Charlotte area all of his life. He became a... Uh, a, a sheriff's deputy in Mecklenburg County at, after his career and uh, very much uh, uh, followed him and, and all of those wrestlers that were around that time, which you're talking about in the late 60s and and mid-70s, of course, he continued on into your career. I did not know that you wrestled him. Uh, did he win or did, did you uh, put the Russian sickle on him? For Fortunately, um, I, I was uh, grateful that it was in the twilight of his career, so he uh, he he understood, and and those in those days understood when you're in the twilight of your career and there's up and coming stars that are on the rise, you know, you make them look good. So I was fortunate to break out of out of his infamous uh, sleeper hole, uh, and and. Uh, he was gracious enough to take that Russian sickle and, and, and still live to talk about it. So, uh, <laughs> with, with uh, you know who I, you know who I who I had become, you know, personified, right? The you know, yeah, so, Russian so John, Johnny put you over then. He did. He did. As as many of them did. I mean, uh, Rufus R. Freight Train Jones. You probably remember that yep, name. Yep, sure do. Um, yeah, and uh, Dory Funk Jr. and and Blackjack Mulligan. So I got to wrestle a lot of the prior legendary guys, and again because they're on the twilight of their career, uh, in helping to build, uh, you know, my persona and and into what I would eventually become, uh, you know, in a meteoric rise. Um, because of some of those legendary guys. Yeah, I want to take it just a slight digression then I'll come back on track but I've got to ask you a question uh give me your uh, thoughts on uh, Klondike Bill Klondike Bill I mean I didn't get to know him well and, and so he was at that point in time he was part of the what what we call the ring crew that's correct that's so correct he, yeah he would take the he was an interesting individual you know I I enjoyed the time I was around him uh, again you know in those days you're not you know, you're more focused on just getting to a town and having your match and that sort of thing. But from what I could, what I re recall, I mean, he was a hard worker, certainly in that part of his life. And, and I imagine uh, his ring persona, he did, you know, he did well in, in his, you know, prior to when he was in the ring, post ring. You know? Yeah. The reason I'm asking the question. So, you know, I met my wife uh, uh, in July of 1994 and I really wanted to win her over. I mean, this was the girl that I was going to marry. I, I did marry her. We've been married for 20 plus years, et cetera. 
but here's a dating tip, and for uh, all you out there who who have this girl that you really you know you want to marry, this is what you want to do. And so I set up a date uh, with her, and I told her uh, I, I didn't tell her where we were going. We're just going on a date. And so I took her to Anderson, South Carolina, which is probably a half an hour from Greenville to the Civic Center to a wrestling show. And she she's never seen, she doesn't know anything about wrestling at all. And uh, she told all of her girlfriends at work uh, the day before, he's taking me on the surprise date. It's going to be special and so forth and so on. And I was recreating a memory because when I was a kid, my grandfather would take us either to the Park Center in Charlotte, North Carolina, which was the smaller venue. And then if they had a bigger show, they would do it at the Charlotte Coliseum on Independence Boulevard. And after the wrestling show, we would go out and drink Coca-Colas and eat vanilla wafers and talk about the wrestling. And that's how I was reared. And so I wanted her to have that experience. Well, we went to the wrestling show, and and she handled it gracefully. (laughs) She really enjoyed it. But at the end of the show, we went down to the ring, and Klondike Bill was tearing the ring down. And I begged him to uh, get a photo op with my girlfriend, and he wouldn't do it. And finally, I said, Klondike, I used to watch you at the Park Center in Charlotte, North Carolina. And he grabbed his hat off and he yelled at the other guy across the ring that was helping him. He said, see, I told you I used to wrestle. This guy watched me at the Park Center. And so he jumped. He, he let's see, he, he jumped out of the ring and he grabbed yeah. my, he grabbed my wife, which you can see there. Yeah. Yeah. I, didn't re- I didn't realize he was so short. Uh and he he grabbed her and so that was one of the highlights of uh of our dating experience and of course she said yes uh, a couple of years later after i asked her to marry me so there's some dating advice for all of you who are looking to uh, find a wonderful woman take her to wrestling and she will say yes <laughs> that's that, that's right that'll that'll seal the deal that'll that'll lock you that's awesome that's a great story all right, so that's my digression. All right, so you you were born in Minnesota. Why is it that so many wrestlers come from Minnesota? And and attached to that, there were half a dozen guys in your high school that you associated with who became wrestlers. Yeah, it's a crazy, really kind of a crazy story to look back on or think about. Which, by the way, you know, in, uh, quick comment on you know, how you were raised in a, in a, you know, dysfunctional family. Um, little side note here. I remember the last time I read the book of, of Genesis and I took a deep breath of a sigh of relief actually, because when I finished it, uh, I went, wow, Lord, there's been dysfunction in the family all the way back to right. day one. And right. Right. <laughs> so I actually felt better about my own dysfunctional family. You mentioned alcoholic dad. You know, my dad was was an alcoholic. Now he wasn't abusive because he left when I was three years old. Right. Um, and and that's a whole story in itself of of how the Lord, forty five plus years later, brought restoration to that relationship. And we ended up the last nine, ten years of his life to have a father son relationship. That oh, you know, I did not know old. that. Yeah, we could talk more about that in the other half of the show, but uh, and and so. 
you know, God does, he, he's in the redeeming business, right? The redemption. And as you said, regeneration right. and rebirth and all of that. So, but that said, back to, to target your question, you know, about Minnesota and specifically Robbinsdale, Minnesota, which is where from the projects of Minneapolis, my mom, single mom, youngest of four, moved us out to Robbinsdale, a suburb, and, and would attend the high school there. And several guys, you're correct, guys like the, the names that some of your viewers may remember or have heard of, uh, Mr. Perfect Kurt Henning, yep. Ravishing Rick Rude, yep. uh, the Z-Man, Tom, Tom Zink, Zink. Yep. Uh, Brady Boone, I think the, like the Wildcat or something like that, John Nord, the Barbarian, or Nord the Barbarian, Nord the Berserker, uh, Barry Darso, a.k.a. Crusher Khrushchev, a.k.a. Demolition Smash in WWF days. Now, Crusher and, became one of your, in, in your three-man, right, with you and Ivan. Yeah, we were six. Yeah, he and I and Ivan Koloff were six-man world tag team champions. And then, of course, because we were the six-man champions, we could interchange any two of the three to defend the world title belt, the world tag team title belts as well. And uh, so, and, and then and then Darso Nord, Henning, Rude, and myself – all played on the same football team in high school one year because we all graduated different years. But one year we all played together. And then a little side note too, um, a guy named Vern Gagne, who was the founder of the AWA Wrestling, All-Star Wrestling, and Mean Gene Okerlin, who was uh, one of the famed announcers of wrestling, also came out of Robinsdale High School years prior but why, you know, my joke is it must have been the minerals in the water tower up there, you know, with 10,000 lakes. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, there's Ric Flair is from Minnesota, Jesse Ventura. The Andersons. Uh, Scott Norton. Yeah, the list goes on and on of guys who were from Minnesota for whatever reason. I mean, it's crazy. Now, did, did they all go through Gagne uh, through his training or? S- some of them did. Some of them did. But guys like the Road Warriors and some of the others went through a guy named Eddie Sharkey, yeah. who I think worked for Vern Gagne for a while, and then eventually, you know, trained a number of guys. Uh, my story is unique in that I had the day I broke into wrestling, the day I walked into Jim Crockett's office in Charlotte, North Carolina, I had only had a five minute phone call with him. There was no selfies and cell phones back in those days. It was a five minute phone call. I had had a couple months prior. He gave me a date to be at his office. I showed up the day he said to be there, drove from Minneapolis to a city that I'd never been before. Talk about stepping out and taking a risk. That'll preach right there. Um, and and walked into his office, introduced myself. He introduced me to Don Cronodal and Ivan Koloff for the World Tag Team Champions. I was put right on the interview set and then told to be in Raleigh, North Carolina the next night to wrestle in the Dorton Arena on television having never been in a wrestling ring no amateur background no professional training that's part of my crazy story yeah and 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 so your only objective really on that evening was not to trip when you went through the ropes right that was the <laughs> that that was what i even that's apparently what jim crockett told life he trips on the ropes he's history he's, he's on you know like how how hard can that be well if you've never tried to climb in a professional wrestling ring it's harder than you might think um a lot of that's much harder than you might think i know you told me before we went on air that you guys used to tie a rope around four bushes and have your own your own matches as kids right you have no idea 
how many times I've heard those types of stories. Uh, and I love it. I love to hear all the stories now. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I've been to WRL studios in Raleigh where they used to, uh, you know, do the TV uh, show. Uh, they, they did it at uh, uh, Big Bill Ward used to do it in Charlotte uh, at uh, WSO. I can't remember the, the call letters now. And then Bob Caudill uh, took it and they did it WRL in, Char- in Raleigh. All right. So let's talk about kayfabe then. Um, the, the knock on wrestling uh, is that wrestling is fake. Okay. Now you probably have you heard that before. And gosh, here's, I wish here's, I had a nickel for every time I heard it. I I I'd own an island and retire. And yeah. all right. So, but here's the thing, and I want you to speak to this uh, because it's an unfair uh, accusation. Assessment. Yeah, yeah, it's an unfair assessment uh, because, I mean, you know, so we go and we watch movies and movies, I mean, they're acting. I mean, they're acting and we're okay with them acting, doing that. Wrestling, there is acting, there is scripting to it, more scripting today than there was back in the old days from what I understand. But right. here's the thing that people miss is that when you talk to wrestlers that have had, like, say, a long career or Ivan was like this, uh, their bodies are broken from head to toe. And like virtually everything, every part of their body has been replaced. And so to just to put it in this category of being fake is unfair, is scripted, is choreographed. You're calling, you know, you're calling the, uh, the moves and so forth. But yet you guys are at risk. And, and there's, a, there's a high element of trust uh, with the person that you are wrestling, uh, but things can go wrong, but just the wear and tear. And so uh, at the height of your career, how many uh, times did you wrestle like in a year? So that's a great, a great setup um, because fake is as far as far. Does really that bother you, by the way? Does that bother you? It, it, it used to. It used to because, okay. uh, to your point, all the injuries that guys sustained in the ring, and and it, it doesn't anymore. I mean, people still say it. Hey, oh, you know, wrestling's fake, right? You know, but what, to your point, what they don't understand is it's not, that couldn't be further from the truth. There's actually nothing, quote, fake about it. I mean, I know what they're saying, but, right. but to use that terminology, you're right, right, is really in a sense unfair because, um, you know, if I if I if you and I were together, Rick, and I slammed you, body slammed you on a concrete floor, <laughs> I, I I assure you, your body will feel the concrete. There'll be nothing fake about that. I joke sometimes in churches or different men's conferences, places I'm speaking. I say, hey, grab me a metal chair. Hey, come up here. I'll, I'll, I might pull a guy to the audience and say, hey, stand there while I hit you with this metal chair, while while look of horror is on his face, and I'll go, oh. Hey, you don't have to worry because it's all fake anyway. You're not even going to feel it, right? So the point being, there's nothing essentially fake about the moves we did, you know, the cage matches, the chain matches, the getting hit with a metal chair, run into a metal post or, or a steel barrier, right? The injuries are as real as it gets. And to your point, many of the guys from hip replacements to shoulder surgeries to torn biceps and triceps and you know, etc. My last match, Rick, I got injured with a guy named named Vader. Van Vader. Vader, yeah. right? 
Yeah. Vader was a legit 450 pounds. He was a big guy. We're fighting out on the floor uh, in, in Winston-Salem. He clotheslines me to the back of my head. My left arm goes numb for about three or four minutes where I have no feeling in it. Eventually it comes back and uh, shorten the story. And then I didn't know till the next day when I was going to go get my neck checked that I had some pain in my lower abdomen come to find out I had a hernia from picking, picking him up 450 pounds, right. And body slamming him. So I had hernia surgery. I fortunately I did not have to, nor have I had to have any surgery on my neck. Although the neurosurgeon gave me the kind of the, the insight of, of what that, injury what that injury and, and prior profession uh, of professional wrestling um how the damage it did to my body right in fact he said you're 33 years old at this point you have the neck of a 55 year old man with right. uh, deteriorating disc arthritis and as far as how many matches for example i always use this example in 1986 you mentioned that year in that one year I had 454 matches in that one year. So, I mean, so you're doing you're doing two a days. Weekends were slamful. You could have six or seven matches on a weekend easily in in, in different towns. Right from a Friday right. night to a Saturday afternoon to a Saturday night to a Sunday afternoon to a Sunday night, and and then factor in television tapings in Atlanta on on early Saturday morning for TBS for the Superstation. That's unbelievable. A lot of work. A lot of yeah. work. Yeah, that's and and that's that's why you know this idea about kayfabe and I, I get it, uh, but being fake, uh, it's not understanding. I mean, this is this is a professional career. It kind of reminds me of an offensive or defensive lineman in football where they're having you know fifty collisions you know during one game. I mean, you're constantly right. colliding. Uh, into another person. All right, so you made it through the ring ropes in your first and didn't fall. I didn't see the match, so I assume you didn't face plant when you walked in, right? I did not. I, that was my focus. I mean, picture it's a sold-out arena, the Dorton Arena. In fact, I was there recently doing an autograph signing at a building just, just a stone's throw from there. It took a couple pictures, brought back some great memories. But it was sold out, you know, June 1984, hot, hot, as, hot as all get out. And uh, certainly nervous, you know, having never been in a ring. Fortunately for me, it was a short match, 11 seconds, uh, uh, I, which I think they knew, uh, let's keep it as short as possible so, so we don't expose his, his inabilities uh, at that point, but, uh, and walked away with my first win in professional wrestling, uh, yeah. You know, a lot of your matches, your early matches were abbreviated like that for that reason, right? Because they wanted you to get your reps in, and, and Don and Ivan were, you know, coaching you you know, all along just to get you up to speed. Yeah. And part of the storyline was, you know, build this Russian menace machine, right. And bring all the gold back to Moscow. That was kind of the, uh, the premise of, and the idea in 1984, you know, the Russians boycotted the, the games right. in Los Angeles, the Olympic right. games, you know, and, and because America boycotted the games in, in Russia in 1980. Right. So it's like, you know, you know, turnabout's fair play. Right. Um, and so that was part of the storyline that I was supposed to compete in the Olympics and I didn't. So I turned pro and, and then Ivan and Don, uh, I had what you would call on the job training. Cause Ivan and I, and Don and I would get to towns two, three hours early for the next two, three months. 
and they would thump and bump all over the ring, teaching me the mechanics of wrestling. And then I'd go out and have a very short match to try to perfect my craft and then watch their world tag match every night. And then on the way home, we would talk about the psychology of wrestling. And you mentioned the name, you mentioned the words kayfabe. Some people are like, well, what's he even talking about? Well, that was simply a term we had in wrestling to protect the business back in those days and still project the react that it was real whether you thought it was or not you didn't know for sure and we were schooled to protect it at all costs you know which is why a couple times reporters got well wrestlers got in trouble and reporters got hurt because they would use that term wrestling's all fake and they i'm thinking the one in particular uh Dr. David Schultz, who open hand slapped, I think I think it was John Stossel, and busted his eardrum and said, "Hey, was that fake?" You know, just just to protect yeah. the business because that was the mentality of old school wrestling. Yeah, and uh, I, I just I've, I've just got so many questions here, but I I was watching uh, I, I went to see uh, Ivan Koloff uh, wrestle uh, Mil Mascaris when he was part of the IWA. And there, there's this other wrestler named Mighty Igor. And when when Mighty Igor came into the ring, I just kind of slapped him on the chest uh, in a uh, you know a fan kind of way. And, and right. when I did, it was hard as a rock. And this dude was big. And when you mentioned uh, Big Van Vader, he was just like that. And I didn't see Vader live, but I'm thinking. I've re- I can still remember hitting Igor on the chest, and it's like there was it was skin covered in concrete, and so I'm I'm imagining you know, you with what Vader did and the injury that you had, uh, because when he came on the scene, it's like what are you going to do with this guy? I mean, he just looked absolutely vicious. He he did, and, and uh, to point out, he had a history of of being reckless. Uh, and injuring guys. And so for that reason, I was cautious on things that some of his moves, I, I made it very clear, you know, a couple of those were, they might, you might do that with somebody else, but ain't, that ain't happening with the Russian nightmare, you know, because I valued my health and my body. And so the injury out on the floor was, again, not intentional. I mean, I, and, and, to, and to his credit, a number of years later, I was doing an autograph signing at a WrestleMania in Miami, Florida, and he specifically sought me out, came to me. This is years later and and said, I- I've never said this, but I do want to apologize and, and say, sorry that I injured you that night. And, uh, you know, hope hope that, you know, you'll forgive me for that. So to his credit, he did come and, and, and tell me that. But yeah, and he was very incredibly, believe it or not, incredibly uh, agile to, to be 450 right. pounds and move around the ring like he did. He did stuff off the top rope, and it was yeah. just – it was crazy. He did stuff I wouldn't do, and I didn't do, um, just because I valued my health. Yeah, I watched his uh, – I think I watched part of his uh, interview shoot, and, uh, and and what struck me was he came across as a gracious, you know, kind of a mild-mannered person. Uh, I, I'm glad to hear you kind of tie a bow on that. Uh, because based on what I saw in his shoot, what you just said makes you know makes makes sense. And so, uh, as far as uh, calling a match, uh, who who is someone that you could completely trust that you wrestled, that you enjoyed wrestling uh, this individual, and you knew that everything would go well, and you didn't have to be kind of guarded with you know something 
unfortunate happening? Great question. I would say a majority of the guys I worked with, uh, you know, you mentioned early on about trust and risk and, 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 you know, when you're putting your body in, in the hand, in, if you want to say in the hands of another guy, whether it's a pile driver or a suplex or a chain match or, or you know, whatever cage match, whatever you might, we might be involved in, you know, some guy hitting you with a metal chair, there is a lot of trust involved there. And so there was only, I probably couldn't count them on one hand that I didn't fully trust and would limit the things they did, Van Vader being one of them. So I would say the majority guys, um, you know, I, I trusted. And, and some of the guys were what I would call, Rick, an absolute night off. And what I mean by that is a Ricky the Dragon steamboat, a nature boy, Rick Flair. You, you mean his, you, you mean his totally trusting them that 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 this will go well trusting that the that not only the match is going to go well but that the fans are going to really enjoy it and we're going to tell a story that that they're going to just just dive right into and and because they had you know guys like flair and steamboat and others had the the ability an intangible ability and again remember i talked about old school psychology we right. don't have time to go into all that but they got it they understood what it meant to to tell that story and you mentioned the classic good versus evil back in those days that was uh, the story we wanted to tell good versus evil and most of the time the good guy did win but if he didn't the bad guy won that was intentional to get that fan back to buy another ticket and come back the next time to the next show and so when i say a night off with guys like rick flair and rick steamboat that that's meaning we, we, it was just a song and a dance. I mean, you could go out there and know that you know you're going to have a very entertaining – the fan is going to get a very entertaining match, going to love the story that we're telling, and, 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 and we're not going to kill ourselves in the process to do it. The objective was to make it look like it hurt but not really hurt the guy. That was the objective. Yeah, the in-ring psychology back then is different than today. Uh, today it appears to be more scripted, and it's almost like you know processed foods. I mean, we're just just going through a script. But back then, uh, th there seemed to be you know in, in the Christian world we talk about being pneumatic, uh, walking in the spirit. You know, just you, you you're just uh, it's not pre-planned. I mean, you know, so you just you just being pneumatic of how you live your life. Uh, in-ring psychology back then seemed to have that pneumatic approach, not that you were totally making it up on the fly, but you could pivot and flex when you had to, and you knew how to put someone over, you knew how to really perform, and it, you know, I just think that is the golden age uh, of wrestling, and so, and, and I, I love Steamboat, and of course, Flair, you loved him and hate him, because he kept going back and forth between being a face and a heel, and but even when he was a heel, you, you loved him. Hey, so when they uh, you said you can shave your head and you were already uh, working out like a fiend, uh, you know, prior to that, so you had the body. When they put the chain around you and, and you're having like chain matches, I mean, I think if somebody told me that, I would just really have a, a, a pause. Like, do you really want me to take this chain into, you know, the ring? And you know, get hit with it or hit somebody else with it. Uh, I, 
you know, talk about kayfabe or not, I don't know how you can pull that off without just being hurt. Well, <clears throat> so I'm going to address two things. One, um, I love your analogy, even even the walk is, you know, walk in the spirit as, as Christ, you know, said, walk, live in the flesh, but walk in the spirit and live a more, the word that comes to mind, Rick, is spontaneous, live a more right, spontaneous right, life. Right, right. <clears throat> and by far, for those who never watched wrestling in your audience or don't even fully understand even what we're talking about, the difference between the product they put out now and the product back then is, is this, to simplify it, distill it down and summarize it. In today's world, the major 99.9% of it, interviews, matches, and otherwise, is 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 scripted. It, it's scripted. So, taking nothing away from the performance, right? They're they're good athletes and good performers. In those days, the only thing we had was what what we call a, a, a predetermined outcome. And and I might be wrestling Ric Flair for, which I did many times for sixty minutes. That predetermined outcome might be a three or four minutes of that 60 minutes, which means he and I had to go in the ring and spontaneously tell a story, as you said, on the fly for it to make sense, to draw you, the fan, into the story and lead into the outcome yeah. for it all to make sense. That was what I call the art of wrestling, which right. is no longer a part of wrestling, unfortunately. Right. And so even if you go back and watch old films, like some of your viewers might go to YouTube and watch Nikita Koloff videos today or, or when this airs, pay attention to the fans because you'll see an even more organic response from the fans because of the mystery of wrestling back in those days. In fact, uh, yesterday, yesterday it was, was a, Twitter blew up because I guess it was the – 35-year anniversary of when, when I turned, become a good guy, came to Dusty Rhodes, the American Dreams Rescue in Charlotte, North Carolina, in a cage match. And, man, it blew up. All day I was I was talking with and conversing with the Twitter, Twitter uh, audience. To the chain match, one quick story referencing the chain match. Um, there was a time I was wrestling Sting, a guy named Sting, Mm -hmm. who is who is an iconic wrestler right. and he's with AEW currently uh, still there in a different capacity for the most part but we we're having a chain match in Chicago I didn't know this till later in fact we discussed this on on my own podcast the the man up podcast when I interviewed him uh, we had a chain match that night and and again wrestling's not an exact science right so timing timing is very important and it only has to be off a nanosecond for a guy to get seriously injured or hurt. And in this case, we have a chain match, and I was infamous for wrapping the chain around a guy's neck, throwing him over the top rope, like, and, you know, uh, hanging him, right? Like I'm hanging him with the chain, and he's dangling, right? Uh, well, what I didn't know was, was the chain was wrapped around his neck, and typically you, you try to get your fingers in between. Right. The right. chain and your neck, so you can actually breathe. Well, it's a good idea. Yeah, he's struggling, Rick, and and, I, and I'm looking at the audience, you know, you know, the menacing Russian, and and I'm like, wow, he's like selling this really good. I'm like, not paying. What I didn't know till later on was he he couldn't couldn't get his fingers in between the chain and his neck, and it was cinching up, and 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 he said I was, you know seconds away from passing out when I finally released it and let it go. 
and, and, and I didn't know that till later. But not only that, it was a real chain. Okay, so right, it's a real right. chain. You wrap it around your wrist to go to punch a guy or something. Those little links can go everywhere. In right. fact, I had some cosmetic surgery post career to fix a bunch of chips in my teeth from some guys and you know wrapping it in through my mouth. You know, so there did you, you ever, did you ever use the blade? I, I did, and my, my approach to that was they can ask you to get color, as we called it. They can't tell you how much, so which is why my forehead looks pretty good. Uh, get a close up there <laughs> compared to Dusty Rhodes and Ivan Koloff and 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 some of the others in the ring. Abdullah, I suppose, the I suppose Abdullah was the worst, you know. Well, Abdullah, Dusty, and and Ivan were some of the worst uh, when you i mean their their foreheads and you know look like a railroad interchange yeah i got so many questions but uh anyway i'm being selfish but uh i i do want to uh <clears throat> i do want to transition um so uh and i don't want to ignore uh your first wife uh you got married uh well a, a couple well several things here so you chose an abbreviated career uh not initially, and I'm just speculating here, but toward the end, what was your reasoning? I mean, you could have went on and on, um, but you chose to, what was going on in your mind as to, like, you weren't in it anymore or just? Okay, great question. Let me let me address, you brought up Mandy, for those who may not know. So she, uh, I, I took a, I, it was an abbreviated career. That's a great way to, to, to approach it. Uh, in fact, I've had a number of fans who have said to me, it, the fact that you had an abbreviated career, what's amazing they have said to me is how impacting your career has been and the fan following that you maintain, yeah. you know, 20, almost 30 years later. Well, um, you didn't play to, you didn't play football too long. Uh, I mean, it's, it's like when you're cut short, I mean, you're frozen in time as, you know, a, you're, you're phenomenal from beginning to end. It's not like the person who keeps putting the, the sneakers right. on when they can't play anymore. Right, which which leads into answer, really answering a question. I'll address Mandy real quick and then answer that question. So Ma Mandy was 24 when she died, diagnosed with, with cancer, went through the chemotherapy, got it into remission, but then it came back with a vengeance. And it was at that point when it came back that I, you know, from a main event position, stepped away and I and informed them and I said, I'll come back, but I'm, I'm going to step away to take care of her. I, she's the first priority. And then she would pass at the age of 26. So my first opportunity to learn firsthand how short life is, right? how, how brief life really is. I mean, 24, you know, pass at 20, 26. So I did step away uh, to even abbreviate the career even more, did come back and then, and then, as unusual a way as I explained to your audience how I broke into wrestling, no training, no background, a meteoric career. I walked away. I've been coined, Rick, the for the the Barry Sanders of, of pro wrestling. Right. That that was that's what I was thinking about last night when I was thinking about this interview. That uh, people were like, "Are you out of your mind? I mean, why are you stopping?" You know. Yeah, and well, in fact, a guy named a uh, good buddy of mine who. In fact, we just finished last week co-facilitating a, a camp. Uh, you see the shirt I'm wearing, Man Camp. He and I facilitate uh, uh, an experience called Man Camp for small groups of men, a catalyst to bring men together to 
equip, empower, to train, teach, and then deploy back home to be healthier, better, godly men, godly fathers, godly husbands, uh, and all that. We can talk more about that. But Lex actually, when he found out, I laughed at age 33. So the match against Vader wasn't career ending, but it was at that point that I made a decision to, to walk away. And, and even prior, I mean, when I met Ivan and Don, I actually told them uh, I will be out of active in-ring wrestling by the time I'm 35. So that was a goal from day one. Oh, and, you mean in I, the beginning? I, in the beginning, you yeah. said? Okay. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the first few weeks we were together, I said, hey, guys, just want to give you a heads up. This is not a long-term career for me. You know, I will be I will be out of active, inactive, you know, in, in-ring active, active wrestling by 35. You know, and they're like, oh, you, will, you know, whatever. So anyway, I, I, I was ahead of that goal because I was 33 getting ready to turn 34 when I made that decision to walk away under my own terms because it was in my mind, Rick, uh, to walk away as on top of the business, as you said, as a champion. And for the record, um, looking back, it was right. And, and Luger's like, that guy's an idiot. That guy's a moron. Why is he leaving? Because, you know, it was just getting ready to explode, right? Monday Night Wars and pay-per-view. And, you know, my, the guy that replaced me, Bill Goldberg, they – signed to a three million dollar a year contract which i didn't make that my entire career let alone one year right and so i could truthfully say that i walked away and lex would verify this and others multiple millions of dollars that i walked away from as a main event wrestler 30 40 50 million dollars or more that i walked away from but little knowing what life held next for me 11 months after making that decision. Right. And the the relationships that you built, uh, like with Ivan, uh, Lex Luger, uh, Sting, Don Cronodal uh, also, and uh, thoughts on Don? Uh, he just passed away uh, in May of this year, I believe. Yeah. I, and and I, I'm, I'm not the funeral guy. Like, I'm not, I'm not a fan of funerals. Let's just say, say it that way. Um, out of respect for the guys I wrestled with, I, I did, I did actually, so just, so I did, I did speak at, at, uh, Ivan's, uh, well, I spoke at Don's funeral The you know, his brother, Wally, was, uh, was he, I'd already said I would. was he buried in, was that in Burlington, Burlington, North Carolina? Yeah. And, and he always asked if I would, and I always, and I gave him my word that I would. I believe your word is important, you know, let your yes be yes, and your no be no, and your word is your bond. And so to honor Don, I fulfilled that that commitment to speak at his. I spoke at Ivan's grave, sorry, uh, very small grave graveside funeral at the request of his wife. I actually spoke at Johnny Weaver's funeral, his daughter. Johnny was invited to a church service by Don Cronodal in Burlington years prior, while he was with the Sheriff's Department, and and Donnie made a, I mean, excuse me, Johnny made a, a, he had left that night, drove a half hour back to sit down with me and have a talk about Jesus and salvation. And, and Johnny and Don and Ivan, uh, those three specifically, I had a role, some capacity of, of them making a decision for Christ. Um, and, and, uh, and so, yeah, I, um, uh, I feel fortunate to to have had 
you know, an impact on, on guys I wrestle with outside of the wrestling ring as much as I did inside the wrestling ring. Yeah, and plus you, I mean, these are multi-decade relationships as well, uh, which is a cool thing. I mean, we, we live in such a unfriending culture uh, that we just do have long-term friendships and to know that, you know, Don and Ivan brought you in uh, or, or you know, mentored you and that right. relationship went to the end of their lives. And of course, you met these other people like Sting and Dusty. You, you talk so favorably of Dusty. I know you witnessed to him. You shared your book with him. Uh, yep. Dusty. Uh, I saw one interview with you, and uh, when you were talking about Dusty, you started talking like Dusty. <laughs> and <laughs> it's, it's like uh, I, I, I could, you could just see, uh, I mean, he just rubs off on you and affects you in such a way. But, you know, all we know is the front-facing side. We don't know behind the scenes. And so to hear you talk about him in such a sentimental loving and affectionate way to even where you start imitating him i mean it speaks to uh, the relationship that you all had uh you know by uh, behind the scenes and you you make him sound like he was this way behind the scenes as he was you know uh on on camera i mean he just seemed like a a jovial kind of guy very very flamboyant would be a word that comes to mind. Dusty, the people's champion. He was a very very flamboyant uh, individual, both in and out of the ring, and 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 like everybody. I mean, you know, you you might catch Dusty on a good day or a bad day, and and or because of his role in wrestling, he was one of the most creative, in my view, one of the most creative guys ever in wrestling. I mean, you know, it was his idea for the best of seven series against Magnum TA. It was his idea for the Great American Bash. Where I wrestled Ric Flair for Ric the first Flair, time. Yeah, it was his idea for the War Games. You know, the two cages, two rings, never done before. Um, the, that was all his. These, those were all his brainchild, and uh, and then the privilege of working not only against him but with him as the as the superpower, baby, if you will. Yeah, <laughs> the American Dream, Dusty Rose, the son of a plumber from Austin, Texas, if you will. Uh, you got it. You, Everybody yeah. loves to imitate Dusty, Rick. But um, so and then to ride you, with him for a couple of years, yeah. and get to know him on a personal level was great. Yeah, I mean those are those are memories that just you, you really savor. One last wrestling question: uh, How in the world can you hit people and uh, be friends with them? I'm thinking about my small group. You know, we we have a you know you have a small group. You meet you know Wednesday night whatever. You talk about Jesus. And then you go in the backyard and body slam and and, and a clothesline or a Russian sickle, uh, right? And, and how can you do that? Four hundred and sixty something, whatever uh, days uh, or bouts uh, a, a year, and you go behind to the dressing room and you know smoke a cigarette or whatever and just enjoy each other i would be deeply uh, at some point i would be ticked off uh but y'all do this uh it's, it's something i mean kayfabe or, or whatever uh i i, I well, just I, I can't get my mind around what well, you what you if you think about what you actually do it's like how do you do this and you remain friends well uh, i'll address it this way okay and and because some think, you know, you're one big happy family. Well, as you alluded to at the beginning, you know, 
you and I both, as we alluded to, we both grew up in a dysfunctional family, right? So, you know, pro professional wrestling is a brotherhood. Let me just say that first. It is a brotherhood, uh, a very dysfunctional brotherhood. Uh, but nevertheless, um, in within that brotherhood, there's a there's a, a common bond. There, as Dusty would say, or you know, commonality as to what we did. But for the record, not you have a, a plethora of personalities. So not everybody was buddies. Not everyone was friends. Uh, but hopefully when you stepped into the ring to entertain the fan, you put your personal feelings aside and, and professionalism stepped in and you performed well enough to entertain the fan. Um, but there are many, many times because you were friends with, with, with many of them, at least I feel, I, I feel I was, believe it or not, to picture in your mind's eye, yeah, you just had this grueling battle out in the ring. I mean, the Road Warriors, we hadn't even talked about them, right? But I mean, I recruited Road Warrior Animal out of New Brighton High School, uh, Irondale High School in New Brighton, Minnesota, to play college football with me. He, in turn, calls me and ends up recruiting me into professional wrestling um, when I was uh, on the path of, of pursuing a professional football tryout. We went toe-to-toe, nose-to-nose many times, magazine covers and everything else. People are like, how could you keep a straight face? Well, it's a mindset, right? You're, you know what your job is, and so you're in there. And there'd be many times when we get back to the dressing room knowing that we gave them a stellar match. And if we were in a building that we could actually see each other after the match, I mean, believe it or not, you know, it was hugs and embraces like High and, five. And, or at least, and or at least a handshake um, and a shoulder bump, you know, saying, hey, man, great, great job tonight. You know, performance, you know, well, well done, you know. Okay, well, I'm, so, going, I'm going to explain that to my wife. So when, when you get good pops, uh, and, and she's my friend, so I'm going to try to figure for a leg lock tonight. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> Be careful when you do that because you really can damage somebody's kneecap. So be careful. Oh, I've done it before, uh, you know, with the, with the, with, not with her. Uh, I got it. Well, good. Well, good, good with the brothers but uh that hurts uh that thing hurts all right so there were there were three uh things that happened so you you predetermined that you plan to have a, a a abbreviated career go out on top okay uh and then uh your your wife uh, gets cancer she dies early that's a a huge wake-up call about the brevity of life uh, and then that last match with uh, Vader, uh, there's a you know the unfortunate thing that happened. So the, the conflation of those three things uh, that really just sealed it for you. Like this, you know, it's time to leave. We can all look at life. I'm sure every one of us and everyone viewing this or, or listening in to, to this interview and 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 see what I would call defining moments. And I've had a number of those even prior to my wrestling profession, but certainly, you know, Mandy's passing was a defining moment. Um, the injury uh, with Vader was a defining moment. My decision at 33 in the height of a professional wrestling career to walk away was a, another defining moment. 11 months later, that would lead to another defining moment. And that is, an altar in Concord, North Carolina on a Sunday morning service, 17 October, 1993, uh, to where I went forward 
and surrender my life to Jesus. I didn't grow up in a church, uh, just like I didn't grow up in Russia. If, if your viewers are wondering, how is he the Russian nightmare speaking perfect English? Go watch YouTube, you'll figure it all out. But I, I didn't grow up in church, but it was an aha moment for me, Rick. When What, what were you I doing? The story. What were you doing in that church? Well, I, I met a Christian <laughs> couple through other business ventures that I was involved in. Okay. Um, it, it wasn't like I never went to church. Right. Um, but so I, I intellectually knew the story. Um, you know, the man, the man Jesus, um, you right. know, dying on a cross. I, I intellectually knew the story, but the story never made the 18 inch trip from my head to my heart. And, and, but it did on that day. It was an aha moment. You know, I just called him up and said, Hey, I'll be in church on Sunday. And it was just, a, it was my time. It was a divine encounter. The Lord, the Holy Spirit wooed me to the altar. It got on my knees. I, I accepted Christ. I had, if you will, a road to Damascus encounter. Life has never been the same. And on that note, I'm going to say this because it's it's fresh. This last man camp we just had. And, and, and you know, I said I, I understood the story in my head, right? But the story never made the 18-inch trip from my head to my heart, which is what transforms your life. Right. You know, transformation, regeneration, as you put it, or, or being born again, as Jesus put it, you must, Nicodemus, you must be born again, born of the Spirit. Well, interesting thing happened at man camp last week, Rick. I had a man, our oldest camper was 69 years old, still running after the heart of God. He came to me on, on, on Thursday morning or Thursday at lunch, and he said, I have to share this with you with tears in his eyes. He said, I got saved this morning. I'm like, okay. He was out on his morning devotional. You're like, oh, that's great. But here's the, here's the caveat to that story. He's 69. I said, Greg, how long have you been in church? He said, most of my life. And he said, I'm a chairman of the deacons. Wow. It's good when the deacons get saved. It's good when the deacons get saved. <clears throat> but the point being, here's a man, 69 years old, been in church most of his life, chairman of the deacons. And God says to him, he said to me, this is out of his mouth. God says to me in my devotion this morning, Greg, you got saved in your mind, but you've never accepted me in your right. heart. Right. Whoa. And I thought, Rick, how many more people are sitting in church every Sunday who are saved in their head, but have never received Jesus in their heart? Maybe even good people, you might say. Right. Right. But, but, I, and the scripture that comes to mind, is it Matthew what chapter seven where where they go, hey Jesus we did we did we prophesied in your name we raised yeah. people from the dead in your name we did all these things in your name we're part of a men's Bible study we went to you know went to church every week but he says depart from me I never knew you right yeah and, and so it really set me on notice to really challenge people with Cola for Christ Ministries to really do you really know him like yeah. down in your knower like down deep in your knower yeah do you really know him and especially i mean where we live i mean i live probably a hundred miles from you or 150 but uh bible right, belt right down the interstate yeah and that's what i was going to say especially you know in the in the bible belt so I, i'm wondering so how much uh i mean i've never been in a a, a place where you know fifty thousand people are yelling at me uh, either positively or negatively, uh, the, the thrill of being a wrestler, but yet there's an emptiness to that that it it can't satisfy. 
And so how much of recognizing that, I mean, you've been to the top, you've enjoyed a lot of fame, you've associated with, uh, you know, the best of the best within your own uh, world, but yet at the end of the day, it's not fulfilling. And of course, as you know now, you know, coming to Christ, that God-shaped hole that we have in us is is closed when we are born again. Uh, was there an awareness of the emptiness, uh, maybe toward the end of your career, that this is not, uh, you know, completely satisfying? Very fair question. In fact, let me say this again, just to, to kind of conclude this, what we said a minute ago, because this really resonates you, you, with me at this point. You, you, you're not going to get to heaven through heritage. In, in other right. words, it's, it's through a personal decision to receive Jesus. It's not through religion, but through relationship. And it's true, you're, you can't live on the coattails of your parents if you grew up in a Christian home or the fact you went to a Christian school or you attended church your entire life, right? It comes down to a personal decision to receive Jesus. So it's not through heritage, uh, right? And, and so on that note, with a number of my friends, Sting, who's a sold-out born-again believer, Lex Luger, who's a sold-out born-again believer and, and a ministry partner, we, we, some of us have come to that same conclusion that when you chase all the things the world has to offer and you reach a pinnacle of success that we did, and those guys have made mo way more, multiple millions of dollars than I ever, you know, dreamed of ever, you know, could have ever made, but, and, and had the fast cars and, you know, and, and big houses and, you know, limousines and jets and the whole deal. But at the end of the day, whether you're a professional wrestler or some other professional sport or, or just, you know, the person out there in the marketplace uh, attempting to climb the corporate ladder or whatever it is you're doing, as you said, God put eternity in every one of his right. creation, every one of our hearts. <clears throat> and the only thing that fills that void or that emptiness is that relationship with Jesus. And for me, you know, it was after I left wrestling and I'm like, what's life hold for me next? Yeah. And, and I'm like, I'm. I, I say it this way. I said it in one of my books. I, I, in fact, I just updated my, my life story just recently. And, and um, but I said it in one of my books, I was successful, but I was unfulfilled. And, and it was on that day at the altar that I could truthfully say in making that decision to receive Christ, that that sense of uh, uh, where I was unfulfilled, all of a sudden, Jesus comes flooding in, the Holy Spirit comes flooding in, and now there's an immediate sense of fulfillment that, man, if I died today, I would now die a, with a fulfilled life. And so I think, Rick, people chase, they chase it, whether it's through chasing chasing money or they, they try to fill that emptiness with drugs and alcohol and sex and all, all, kind, all kinds of other things. Um, but the only thing, the one and only thing that'll fill that emptiness, no matter how successful, quote, you become in life, and that's a definable term, right? That the only thing that'll that'll fill that void in all of our lives is that relationship with Jesus right. and accepting him in our heart, not in your head, in your heart uh, as Lord and Savior. Yeah, 100%. Uh, I didn't uh, go through wrestling uh, to experience what you're talking about. I had a mind for it. I just didn't have a body for it. Uh, and so uh, I did the drug route. And so I went through drugs and alcohol uh, as a way of trying to settle this dysfunction that I had in my own soul. When God saved me at 25, uh, it was actually, it was it was not a big moment, you know, like, 
uh, a parade and fireworks. Yeah, fireworks. But what happened is that as, as I started, then I, I started having new affinities, like I wanted to read the Bible for the first time. I wanted to be part of a local church. And it was probably six months later where it dawned on me like, whoa, something has changed. It was so imperceptible. But once I got six months down the road after God saved me, I I realized, oh, I have something I've never had before, and it was peace. I had peace in my soul, uh, but it came through this process after he regenerated me, and then I realized that's the thing that I've been looking for my entire life is just to be content, to have shalom, to have peace in my soul. And it is. It's, it's, it's not an intellectual. I mean, it is an intellectual pursuit, but it has to be a transformative pursuit. It can't be just what I know, but it, it's what, you know, really has transformed me, as you say, the 18 inches between the head and the heart. Well, right. Well, okay, because you, I mean, you go to the script, I mean, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and you read the Bible. I mean, they had all the intellectual knowledge in the world. Paul who said he, I was the greatest of Pharisees or whatever, right? And, right, and, right. and yep. well-schooled by what? Galamamil, however you say his name, whatever. Yep. One of the most schooled guys on the planet of his time, you know, persecuting and attempting to murder and kill Christians who got knocked off his high horse on the road to Damascus and, and blinded for three days and, and, and had a conversation. You know, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Uh, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. So it took that encounter to transform and change his life. And he goes on to become what uh, I call him a spiritual heavyweight, right? right. Well, a good portion of the New Testament. So it's when you have that encounter, that genuine encounter. And I like what you said. It's not always fireworks. Now, for some people, it might be. It might be right. a, that moment might be a moment filled with fireworks and, and loud explosions and everything else. But for others, it can be a very subtle thing. Right. And, and, you know, we had two other guys at, at, at Man Camp that got radically changed uh, the, last week as well who you knew that you knew, you could tell. You could tell by the countenance on their face uh, and, and, and even the look in their eyes that they encountered Jesus. And, and I talked to them yesterday, you know, post-camp. And, and man, they have, they, they're, 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 they're a changed man. They're, they're a, now they're in the process of being a babe in Christ and now being mentored and grow, and grow up. And that's an ironic too. I, I want to mention this. Ivan and Don mentored me in wrestling, and then I later had the opportunity to mentor them and their walk with Christ. And so that kind of an, a, a, an interesting twist as well. Yeah, that's very cool. You've been very gracious with your time. I just uh, just a couple more questions. One's real quick. And uh, uh, do you get to keep the belts? You 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 don't. Uh, the re well. Typically, no, because you go on to lose them to somebody else, right? Right, so there's and no... the, there's an exchange in the ring, but do you get to keep No, it? I mean, it, it passes on to the next guy who wins the match. Now, that said, I do have a belt because we did a, I did two unification matches. One for the U.S. title, heavyweight title, Wahoo McDaniel, where I beat him in Atlanta, the Omni. Second one in Chicago, Terry Taylor, unification of the world TV title, I was the NWA champion. He was the UWF champion, and they were phasing out the UWF. I do still have that original belt from 1987, Starcade, um, and, and I joke and say I still have it because they never asked. They never asked for it back, and I didn't volunteer to give it. And at the time, didn't even really think about it. But uh, so I, 
that's become kind of, if you will, kind of a prop, if you will. And for some of my is that on your website? Is that the one on your website? Correct. That, yeah, that's the world UWF World TV title. Yep. It seems it seems like after you win one, and even as you you know lose it, they ought to give you that to put in your trophy case. But anyway, I was always curious about that. All right, so uh, hot tech here. Uh, wrestlers actually can write books, uh, <laughs> right? And uh, how yes. Many- <laughs> Well, for people, hey, here's what's funny. I, I have a pastor friend of mine who introduces me at his church. And he's like, he's written some books and they're actually good. And I'm like, oh, thanks, Rick. I appreciate that. Uh, you know, people just say, I think sometimes they see athletes and wrestlers in particular as just right. dumb jocks, right? Like, right, right. Like, oh, how do I get to the ring? You know, but, um, I, and I never, I mean, if I had to summarize, Rick, my life looking back at this point, all of it has been that, 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 it sounds cliche-ish, but it really is true. Surreal, right? I mean, the fact I had the wrestling career that I had when I never, with no training or background, and now for the last 28 plus years as a, as a Christ follower to travel to 30 different countries, preach and minister in about 1,200 or plus or minus churches to, uh, I've currently written three books. So okay. yep. Adele of the Ring of Redemption, I just updated that one adding seven or eight new chapters in the last several just the last few few months ago and we'll uh, we'll link we'll link we'll link those in the show notes as well of uh, the podcast yeah i'll get you i'll get you those links too and i'll email you those links but um um because it's all it's kind of my website's kind of a one-stop shop in other words you know you go to the website and and you can go check out the books you know wrestling with success nikita tell the ring of redemption i'm working on a fourth one and i'm working on updating the very first one that I wrote called Breaking the Chains. Um, and and uh, so, yeah, so a book author who I never would have dreamed in a million years, an evangelist traveling around the world telling people about Jesus I never would have dreamed in a million years, and um, and and a podcast, a host of a podcast, a radio show, and I'm getting ready to launch a television version of the radio show called The Man Up Show. But that website has it all. It links you to the man camp I referenced that Lex and I facilitate. It links you to the podcast. You can go to the store and 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 you know view the books and other things. Um, yeah, yeah, it's just I'm just amazed at what I get to do. What God what God puts on my plate and allows me to do. I'm just is amazed. Your, is, is your mother still alive? She's not. She passed at the age of ninety three. My dad passed at the age what, what, of ninety-two. What what year did your mom pass? Who uh, you know, I should probably know that, but she Roughly. she passed. Let's see. Well, let's let's okay. Hold on. She was born in nineteen nineteen. I'm not good at math, but she would have been hundred and two years old, and she died at ninety-three. So I guess nine years ago. Okay. So what what did she think of your wrestling career? She never said, she never told me, but anytime I went back home to Minnesota and met, you know, the bus drivers who would drop her off at the house or whatever else, and they're like, oh, I know who you are because every time your mom gets on this bus, she lets all of us know who you are. So, oh, okay. She was, she was very, uh, uh, in, uh, oh, she was proud of her. She never yeah, yeah. said it to me, but she was proud of her son and had some of the magazines with me on the cover and, and uh, okay, uh, yeah, let good. me say this about my dad. You know, we made reference to well, him. Yeah, I do. But did your mother make you, when you went home, she make you sit down in a bay and, and uh, was she the boss? Or did she make the, did she, did, was she the only one that could tame the Russian nightmare? 
No, in fact, you know, uh, I, I'll just say this. At age 76, God put it on my heart to talk to her about salvation. I had the privilege of, of it, it took me two weeks to build up the courage to talk to her. And it was on the day I was packing to leave that God reminded me of why I was part of the reason I was going there to begin with for Thanksgiving, that I had the conversation ended up uh, leading her in a prayer of salvation at age 76. And, and, and she always said, I was, uh, I was a good, a good boy is how she phrased it. And I said, yeah, you, that's only because you didn't know half of what I did, mom. And, uh, you know, being the youngest of four, I, I looking back, I, I was not probably the most honoring son on the planet. Um, again, you know, try to respect my mom, but plenty of times I disobeyed my mom and, and, and paid no attention to anything she said to me. So, okay. So your dad, yeah, you said that in the beginning that, uh, he left when you were three long time separated. Uh, I, I want you to go. I mean, I've, I've taken up too much of your time here, but the reconciliation, uh, how did that, if you don't mind the, the short version, and I, I will say this for those who link to the pot, podcast the man up podcast go go i did a whole entire show on on the redemption with my dad and yeah. i didn't know this rick but but i was going through a stack of cds and just kind of house cleaning and and several of them were not marked and i'm like oh, i better look i better at least see what's on this before i toss it before i throw it out i didn't know i had my dad's testimony on one of those cds and so on the show I dedicated to my dad on the radio show slash podcast, I actually give the full story on this and play his testimony, mm. which was powerful. But all that to say, the Lord prompted me uh, a number of years ago to begin to reach out to him, to call him on a very regular basis. And, and, to make sure every time I hung up to say, because he still lived in Minnesota, I was in the Carolinas, to say, I love you, Dad. Well, I, I was 46 when I started reaching out to him. Ironically, he got saved at age 46, delivered of alcoholism, later delivered of tobacco addiction, and went on to become part of my prayer team. But wow. all that to say, the first yeah. few months that I had conversations with him and say, hey, Dad, one more thing. I love you, Dad. He would, he would not reciprocate. He's like, oh, okay, thank you. Oh, that's nice or whatever. Fast forward several months of consistent phone calling, conversations, reaching out and, and telling him I love him on his birthday, uh, which, by the way, he was born on May 5th, Cinco de Mayo. Same as your daughter. Same as same, my daughter. Same as, same as me. Same as you, Cinco de Mayo. Uh, 1924, May A lot 5th. of great people born on uh, Cinco de Mayo. I'm, ju I, I'm, I'm <laughs> guessing, right? Come on, here we are. All that to say on his birthday, after several months of calling and saying, I love, for the first time ever, he, he reciprocated back with a, I love you too, son. And that led to uh, a restoration process of even him trapped. The reason I have his testimony is, Churches brought him with me to share his testimony of what he called grabbing the old rugged cross. And then I would preach. So it's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? And fast forward, fast forward to the Lord prompted me to go there. I sensed he was in his last days. So I was there the last four days of his life. 
And the last night I left his room, he was in assisted living. He got himself up out of that chair to hug me. He didn't even know how to hug when I first started hugging him. I mean, he was just rigid. He was like, you know, how do I hug this guy? And uh, he got himself up out of his chair, Rick, gave me a hug. And, and I'm like, I'll see you tomorrow, Dad. And, uh, and the last words out of his mouth, literally, were, I love you, son. Wow. Wow. The very last words out of his mouth. Wow. So, God's in the God's in reconciliation, restoration, redemption, uh, regeneration. So there you go. Yeah, that's the perfect rap. Uh, that's just the perfect rap right there because people need to hear that story. There's so, and you know this, but there, I mean, there's so many broken families for all sorts yep. of reasons, and yep. <clears throat> there's people that come. To the, I mean, this is what our ministry does: is we. Uh, help with these matters, but we get those stories all the time about brokenness, uh, especially between children and and parents. My story was yes. very, very similar, and to hear the end of the story as you just shared here, it just gives a lot of hope uh, that this can happen. That God, as you say, is in the reconciling business. I am talking to uh, Nikita Koloff. Uh, I am taking a a a a walk down memory. Lane, and this has just been a fabulous uh, interview for me. I've, I've benefited so much, and there's a lot here. Uh, there is just so much here. I'm not going to re recapsulize it, uh, but there's so much here as, as you see a, a person chasing a, a dream and then eventually finding it in the most unexpected places with Christ. We're going to put links uh, in the YouTube video. We'll also put links in the show notes to Nikita's website, also the books, the podcast. And you can follow him and the things that he's doing. Uh, he is uh, on Twitter and Instagram primarily. You do have a Facebook presence, right? I do. I have someone that really kind of manages that way for sake of time, but but I do post, uh, try to post something, uh, you know, actively each and every day and, uh, you know, something, you know, hopefully motivational, inspirational, try to, uh, you know, uplifting to, uh, you know, to, to those who follow me on, on all those platforms. And, and I want to say this too, about, uh, appreciate you having me on your podcast. And, uh, again, a radio show like wrestling was not something I was looking at doing and, and, or a podcast or now a TV show, but, um, uh, I, I'm fortunate to say in, in, in just, just now, just over one year that, uh, the, the podcast has been downloaded in 58 different countries. And, uh, and I would covet anyone's prayers out there because I'm not satisfied with that. I'll, I'm going to reach over a hundred countries and, and get the radio show syndicated across America just to get the gospel message out there. And, and so, yeah. So thanks for having me on Rick. I really appreciate it. You're very welcome. Thank you. You have been listening to Life Over Coffee with Rick Thomas. If you have a question for Rick, you can let him know by sending him a note through his website, rickthomas.net. That's rickthomas.net. Thanks for listening. Enjoy your coffee.